1: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. We've got another Americans in Action episode for you this week. We're talking CONCACAF Nations League, USMNT players that could get a move this summer, and which player stock is up or down after World Cup qualifying. To do all of that, I'm joined by two fine fellas. Up first, a man who knows that the CONCACAF Nations League is the tournament to be excited about in 2022, not the Champions League final, not the World Cup finals. It's the CONCACAF Nations League. Is that correct, Joe Lowry?
2: Oh yeah, I mean, there's. I didn't even know there were those other tournaments happening. I, I've not heard of them before, Taylor.
1: <laughs> After all of our World Cup coverage, Champions League analysis in one Jared year of the other, building yep. to
2: Concacaf Nations League. You know it, Taylor. I mean, come on, it, it, it's not hard to get excited for games against El Salvador and Granada in a World Cup year. Come on, it's just not. <laughs> it's easy. Shots fired at Granada, and I guess El Salvador, but I'm I'm assuming mostly
1: Granada from Joe. Uh, With us as well is a man who was personally attacked by our co-host Joe Lowry yesterday when Joe declared that England would win the World Cup. Graham, I appreciate your willingness to soldier on today in what I'm assuming is basically a hostile workplace at this point. Between that (laughs) and Kieran Tierney, I have to say it's commendable that you're putting on such a brave face.
3: Yeah, I mean, the non-existent TSS HR department is yep. getting a lot of mail at the moment from uh, the four of us, and yes, I've, I felt personally attacked yesterday. I, I have this theory that actually Joe's bad juju kind of uh, caused Kieran Tierney's mm. injury, mm-hmm. so uh, yep. Joe, that's on, that's on you. Yeah, and, and I'll never so forget. <laughs> so we know it was a knee injury. We don't know the severity
1: of it or like what specifically was injured. Graham, do you think it's only fair that when we learn what it was that Joe donate that body part to Kieran Tierney as kind of a make-weight?
3: Well, I, either that or we injure Joe in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, seems fair. So, Mafia uh, style, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, Joe, uh, yeah, outstretch that leg. And uh, this is getting a bit, uh, wow. a bit too far, actually. <laughs> Let, <laughs> Sorry, let's Joe. Take, let's
0: take us in a slightly... I lost the run of myself
3: there a little oh. bit, yeah. No, okay.
2: no, you, no, no, you can do donate your knee. Comment. You can this donate is good. your knee. That'll this do. is good. It, it's a theme because I've given my hamstrings to Gio Reyna, not that that really seems to have been working. Who knows at this point? <laughs> and so now I guess I'm either I'm either making... Retribution for for tyranny, or I'm donating him another body part. I'm I'm fine with that. Grimm. I still have a whole other leg to get into here.
1: Joe, you're not. a fairly like positive avuncular fellow. If you gave like twenty percent of that to Geo Reyna. Do you think that that helps him, or does that sort of destroy his entire player profile? Is being nice going to weaken his game?
2: <laughs> yes, whatever of the niceness transfers from my hamstrings up to Gio Reyna's yeah. brain and personality, I think that will make him a worse player. I, I'm partially doing a bit, but Taylor, I actually do think you're onto something. Not from really, like a science standpoint, but like yeah. you know, you get it.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, this is, if nothing, a completely accurate uh, science podcast. Yes. If we see Gio Reyna uncharacteristically uncharacteristically like, pick an opponent up off the floor, we'll know that was Joe Lowry's influence. And the rest yes. of it is just back to Gio. <laughs> we'll see if Gio Reyna is involved in the Nations League. Uh, we have our group. We have our opponents, as we alluded to in the intro. Uh, we've got the United States in group uh, a, group D, excuse me, of League A Obviously, nothing confusing about the Nations League In a group so with stupid. El Salvador and Granada uh, Joe, I guess Graham has uh, made his feelings known uh, <laughs> Joe, how are you feeling about the Nations League Now that we've got our group uh, And I guess many other groups as well Mexico goes into Group A with Jamaica and Suriname uh, Costa Rica in Group B Canada, Group C USA, uh, El Salvador, not Slovenia El Salvador and Granada in Group D
2: so, am I the only one who thinks that the format's actually not very complicated? like for grant for you, who comes from the u k where there is pro rel like the format between League A, B, and C you move up and down if if you do well in your group you move you move down if if you do poorly, and then if you win your group in group A, you go into the semifinals and there's four groups. So that's a pretty easy four team bracket like this isn't rocket science here, folks. That's not my beef with with nations League. I don't even have generally beef with nations League. The only disappointing bit of this for me is not specifically about this tournament because there's only so many quality teams in CONCACAF. It's just with the lack of opportunities that the U.S. is going to have to really prepare themselves against quality competition before the World Cup. As far as we know, there's going to be two Nations League games in June. There'll be two friendlies before that, I believe, and then two more friendlies in September, and that's it. Like, this this draw, where the U.S. don't get any teams from CONCACAF that are that are qualifying in the World Cup, they they don't really get any teams that threatened in the Ocho. El Salvador has done some good things under Hugo Perez, but they're not this real threat necessarily. And Granada, I, I don't know a ton about them, but, I mean, they obviously didn't even make it to the Ocho. They finished on top of their, their uh, group in League B last time around in this competition. You're going to need more. Like, the U.S. is going to need some quality opposition to really test guys. I don't think... That the U.S. is going to bring any sort of B team to these Nations League games. There's only so many opportunities left to to get the core group together. Maybe you try to test out a couple spots. I just wrote a piece for MLS yesterday about Georgi Mihaljevic and, and Paxson Pomiko and Brendan Vasquez, how those guys could be in contention. And there's probably a few European guys as well that are pushing. But maybe you try to get looks at a couple of those in, in one of these Nations League games, but still... Berhalter only has so many chances to get the core group together and to try and iron out some tactical things. They have to take advantage of every opportunity. I just wish the opportunities were maybe a little stronger in in
3: June. Get the USMNT in the MLS All-Star Game is my proposal. That's played around (laughs) the summertime, isn't it? All-Star Game. Oh, it's perfect. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, and, that's, and players that is equally and players.
1: as competitive, I think, as uh <laughs> as some of the potential opponents in CONCACAF for sure. We play these group stage games. Uh if the United States finishes top, they advance to the Nations League semifinals. If they win that, they make it to the final. That would be, I think, the summer after this one, so June 2023. Uh the second place team will advance to the gold cup. The first place team obviously does as well, but then they have the The playoffs, and then the third place team goes back into Group B. The top team in Group B comes back into League A. That's how it works. And ideally, as we've talked about on the show before, it builds up CONCACAF. It gives these teams, uh, smaller teams, more opportunities to play. Uh, CONCACAF opposition and ideally stronger CONCACAF opposition, so theoretically it strengthens the Confederation as a whole. Either way, it gives the US some games. Whether or not those are the games they need to tune up for the World Cup is a different conversation. I think I agree with Joe on that one. Graham, anything else you wanted to add before I ask you a quiz about Granada? <laughs> <laughs>
3: I'm looking forward to that quiz. Mm-hmm. It might be a short one, yep. uh, given my knowledge in Granada. Um, I'm actually interested in you. your guys' um, Perspective on the, on the Nations League because in in Europe Scotland they're obviously involved in the, UA, in the UEFA Nations League. the The general consensus is that the Nations League is better than the friendlies that it replaced. And I think even though the the format, I uh, the thing you're forgetting, Joe, is I am very very stupid. I'm a, I'm a dense human, so <laughs> I do find it uh, quite complicated. It's the promotion and relegation bit between the groups. And I think the branding is a bit of an issue, like League A, Group D, yeah, and all that is very too many that's letters, twenty letters. Like, Call it, like, the Champions Division, Group A, and, like, the Conference Division. Like, just mix up the branding a little bit. Anyway, in Scotland and then UEFA, the the consensus is Nations League is better than friendlies. But with the US, with the strength of uh, CONCACAF, and I hope I'm not being disrespectful, obviously there are some comparably strong teams in CONCACAF, but the depth isn't the same in CONCACAF that it is in UEFA. Do the US actually feel the, the pinch of losing those friendlies? Because, obviously, those, those friendlies would typically be against... Higher caliber, caliber opposition, you know, U- European teams, your Italy's and Germany's and Portugal, that the US has played in, in kind of years gone by in these friendlies. Do, is there more of a sense that that is a, a bit of a loss actually for the US?
2: I think Taylor, and you can disagree with me on this if you like, Grem. That the initial round, like the group stage of Nations League is probably not the most useful exercise. And I think in that case, the U.S. does miss out on being able to play some higher-quality, friendly opposition. To be fair, though, I mean, now that everybody's moved to this Nations League model, or at least UEFA and and CONCACAF has, that cuts down your list of friendly opponents quite significantly. So there's that factor. But I do think a a part of this competition that is extremely valuable for the U.S. is as you work into the semis and the final. Like, I mean, Taylor, I I think you you and I remember this very clearly – Last summer was was real competition for the U.S. That Honduras game, they didn't play well at all. They had to test themselves, and, and they probably made it a lot more difficult for themselves than they needed to. But that Honduras game, moving into the final against Mexico, those are really valuable reps and a chance to play some of the better teams in CONCACAF. Honduras, obviously, has taken a nosedive kind of since then. But I, I do think there's some value here, Graham, but, but to your point, or maybe to your question, I do think the U.S. lacks... For high quality opposition. You don't have to be you know, a rocket scientist to see that in this group. They they lack some of that. And I do I, I do think that hurts their ability to continue to grow as a program in some ways.
1: Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I wouldn't be surprised for that reason if we see a European opponent or a stronger Western Hemisphere opponent scheduled either just before or just after the Nations the Nations League games, just as a way to kind of with the squad already together give them maybe one. Stronger opponent. Uh, I do, and I agree with what Joe said about once we get to the knockout rounds. I would add, theoretically at least, that these two games are two games that are competitive, quote unquote, on the road in CONCACAF. uh, And the United States doesn't really get many of those. They rarely play friendlies on the road in CONCACAF. Usually it's only World Cup qualifying, and that's pretty much it. So if you want to give younger players more familiarity with what it's like to go on the road, this is a good opportunity for that. I would say immediately after World Cup qualifying has finished, sort of limits the effectiveness of that argument, but I think historically and going forward, that would be one advantage as well. And I really, really enjoy that Graham wants to have clearer branding. I'm assuming he's advocating for the English model of the Premiership, the Championship, and League One, uh, all of which <laughs> seem to imply that they are the top division, even yeah. though
3: only one of them truly is. So I think yeah, and the, basically and what and even we can worse than is, that is... Even worse than that is when Scotland rebranded our pyramid. We copied their exact model. <laughs> and so our- like USL. <laughs> Everybody's doing it. Yep. <laughs>
1: Oh, which is just a good reminder, if all of your friends are rebranding themselves with confusing terminology, you don't have to do that. You don't have to jump (laughs) off that bridge, CONCACAF. Graham, the obvious quiz question for you, what is Granada's national team's nickname? I have a hint for you if you need it. I'm going to need the head. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it is very similar to a 1990s all-female Britpop group.
3: Uh, the Spice Boys? You are correct, my friend. Yes. Well done, Graham Ruffin.
2: <laughs> That's uh, yes. so tight. That's uh, actually really, really sick. I like yes,
3: that. sir. Granada is, I guess,
1: the Isle of Spice or the Spice Island. So their national team is the Spice Boys. Well done. A point to Graham Ruffin for that one. Graham, I know that was the point that you needed to start the show off. I'm assuming that makes the Kieran Tierney injury much more manageable.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm taking that point as what Scotland needed to qualify for the World Cup. Perfect. Um, so can't take that, take that away from us now. See, we're there, we're in the group. L-
1: listeners need to understand that it seems as though Graham is, is, is as superstitious to, now, if Scotland doesn't qualify, to be like, see, I was gloating about how we're going to qualify when I predicted that, that getting the, <laughs> the trivia question right would get us there. So Graham, I don't want you to feel guilty down the road. Uh, your knowing the Spice Boys had nothing to do with whether or not Scotland made the World Cup.
3: Okay, thank you for absolving me of that.
1: <laughs> My pleasure. It was totally necessary. Uh, we will get into players whose stock is up, stock is down later on in the show. Right now, though, uh, I want to get to a segment inspired by a tweet from Brandon Jones. I started to respond to this one, and then I realized, hey, this could probably be a segment in the show, and it will be right now. Uh, he, Brandon asked, which USMNT players are most likely to move this summer? He also asked if we thought Luca De La Torre might be able to move on from Heracles to a bigger league. And for me, this doesn't necessarily mean, Joe, that we're talking about who has like entirely earned a move or who needs a move. It could be who might be surplus to requirements and, and has to move on. It could be any number of things. It's not necessarily who has played themselves into a bigger role. But who did you have as needing a move or possibly getting one this summer?
2: Sure. I have a few, and Luca De La Torre is one of them. I'll just start with him. Brandon, I think you're you're wise to point De La Torre out here. He's 23, almost 24. He's been at Heracles for two seasons now after moving there from Fulham. And at the end of the day, fellas, I just think he's a better player than a mid-table Eredivisie team. I don't think Heracles is a particularly strong side. And I don't think that their possession structure is particularly good. And so, Graham, that kind of goes to some of your, I think, justified criticisms, at least to an extent, about De La Torre at club level of him maybe not quite pushing the game enough at times. I'm not sure how much of that is on him. I I tend to think that some of that's on the structure around him, and I don't know how likely that is to change anytime soon. So between that and just the fact that I think we've seen with the national team sporadically throughout World Cup qualifying, and maybe we'll talk more about De La Torre and his stock later, I think we've seen how good of a player he is and how good of a player he can be. I think he's ready for a move, and I don't know if that's outside the Eredivisie. I don't know. I mean, maybe he could get a move to a bigger club there and, and move to Feyenoord or move to PSV. Ajax I- might be a I- bit a, a bit of a reach, but Iax. I know I'd be, I'd be I'd be stoked about that, Graham. You already he, know.
3: He, hold, hold on a second. Here's a thought, though. Right, I know Ajax is the biggest uh, club in the Eredivisie, and maybe that is a step too far, but. There is a good chance that Ajax this summer are looking for a ball carrier to break lines and generally progress the ball from central midfield if Ryan Gravenberg is leaving this summer, which looks likely. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Just putting it out there. Yeah. I mean, Graham, I'm totally here for it. I think you're looking at a little bit of a
2: different physical profile, but almost everybody's a different physical profile than Gravenberg because he's a unicorn out there. So De La Torre is, is absolutely one of the players on my list. Brendan Aronson is another. Fellas, 21. I've been a regular starter at Salzburg for a year and a half now. After moving from from the Philadelphia Union, he's had some good competition in the Champions League and in the Europa League. But Salzburg are pretty dominant in the Austrian Bundesliga, which isn't their fault necessarily. But I just think it's time for Aronson to test himself at a different level. Greg Velasquez and, and Bell's Taylor, when we had them on the show. And we did those crossovers, I think, at, towards the end of, of 2021. That was one of the names that Greg mentioned in that sequence because it feels like it's just time for Aronson to get more competitive games on a more consistent basis. And I just don't think you can get that at Salzburg. Leeds has been in forum reportedly for a while now. It really feels like something like that is going to happen maybe now, especially with Jesse Marsh at the helm. Mm-hmm. Those, those two people will at least know of each other, of course. They played together.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I didn't. I kind of forgot because Goldfish Brain—that uh, was who uh, Aronson played under when he first moved to Salzburg. They won the league and the cup double together. Oh shoot! Uh, of course. So there's familiarity there. Let's get him
2: back in England. Let's have them win the league and cup double there. That would probably make some headlines. It would. The only the only player I have left on this list before I turn it over to you, Graham, and you, Taylor, is maybe Zach Stefan. Career-wise, I think mm-hmm. Stefan has a, a pretty darn great gig. It goes to my theory that being a backup or third-string quarterback in the NFL is the best job in sports. Being Man City's backup goalkeeper is is certainly up there. He's thriving right now. like He's he's living the good life. I'm not sure if if he needs a move, and I'm not sure if a move will happen. It all comes down to what really what Berhalter thinks and how much that's going to impact Zach Stefan's ability to play at a World Cup. I think Stefan will, of course, make that World Cup roster because Beralter likes him a lot. But if Beralter has seen some of the issues, Taylor, that that we've talked about on some of our USMNT review shows, and he wants Stefan to get regular minutes, it might be enough to prompt Stefan to go to City and say, hey, I'd really like a loan to somewhere where I can be playing regularly to prove to my coach that I should start at the World Cup. So that's one path. The other path is that Beralter doesn't care, which is kind of what, what I think is the case. Braulter accepts Stefan flaws and alls, and still will have him be the starter. And if that's the case, then he shouldn't move because I think he's doing fine at City. He's getting some sporadic minutes in cup competitions, and it seems like he's happy there and he's learning things. So I don't know if he'll move or not. If if I was Stefan or if I was Greg Bralter, I would encourage a move. Because I I don't think Stefan has been good enough for the US and I'm not sure he's going to get better sitting on the bench. But he does have the advantage that Matt Turner is going to be doing the same thing in the Premier League. So maybe it's not all that different between if,
3: those two guys. If, if we eliminate the, the World Cup from the equation, um, because I think it's difficult to second guess what Berhalter actually thinks about Stefan. If we're actually looking at what's best for his career, I 100% think he needs a move this summer because i feel like zach stefan is a strange case for me i feel like we need to learn more about him and it's strange that there's a 27 year old goalkeeper for manchester city who is the usmnt's number one goalkeeper and it still feels like we're kind of figuring zach stefan out a little bit you know the idea with stefan is that he's good at distributing the ball but some of his recent performances for the us in particular have called that into question i think it's fair to say and regular game time is the sort of thing that might iron some of those those things out. I think he needs reps, and he's just not getting that at City. And I know Berhalter has spoken about, uh, with regards to Turner, that he he li- he likes those players going to the big clubs and learning from, you know, Zach Stefan is learning from Ederson and Pep Guardiola and all the coaching staff at arguably the best team in Europe at the moment, Manchester City. But he has been there for two seasons now, and I do think there is. My personal opinion is there's probably a ceiling where you don't learn all that much past yeah. a certain point and you do need reps. You do need minutes. And I personally think Zach Stefan is coming to that point this summer where he just needs to play football. I mean, when was the last time he was a first-team goalkeeper? He was at Fortuna dus- Dusseldorf for a season, yep. right? For, that was season. like yeah. two, three years ago. That's a while. That's quite a while when you're you know 27 years old and you're coming into your, I know goalkeeper's peaks tend to be slightly later, but he's coming into his, his prime years. I just feel like he needs to play for the, for the best of his career, as I say, eliminating the World Cup from the equation. And the
2: U.S. is going to be in a weird spot, goalkeeper-wise, Graham. As I mentioned there, Turner and Stefan are going to be doing basically the same thing at, at Arsenal and Man City if there isn't a move for Stefan. I don't think, I mean, maybe Turner gets loaned out after getting to Arsenal, maybe that's something he asked for, I would be surprised by that. He's had time to think about what this timeline was going to look like ahead of the World Cup. So that, that wouldn't make a ton of sense to me. Maybe it happens. Maybe it doesn't, I guess. But it's going to be tricky for the U.S. to have their number one and number two goalkeeper, 1A, 1B, both doing the exact same thing, sitting on similar benches in the Premier League, unless a move happens.
1: We will return with more conversation about Americans who could do with a move in just a second. First, we're going to take a break to hear from today's sponsors. Welcome back. Uh, Joe and Graham, your conversation about should Zach Steffen get a move uh, and, uh, and World Cup conversations as well has me wondering, we normally see in, say, a January window before a summer World Cup, we'll see maybe players a little bit hesitant to make moves, teams as well, because there can be value increases uh, based on a strong World Cup performance, but also if you're a player and you know where you're playing, you know you're getting minutes, you know what's happening, to move to an uncertain club, to an uncertain team with a new manager, you don't quite know, and you don't know if you end up getting those reps, and it could be detrimental to your ability to play in the World Cup or make the squad. Graham, do you think that will factor into the transfers we do see this summer? Because summer window is the big one. It's usually when there's a ton of money spent, but with a fall World Cup, a winter World Cup, I don't know how much activity we will see.
3: Yeah, absolutely fair to, to mention that. I think it will be a big factor for a lot of players. And that's why I say when I was talking about uh, Zach Steffen there, when, mm-hmm. I, when I say eliminate the World Cup from, from the equation, because Joe's point is entirely fair that Zach Steffen is the US's number one goalkeeper at the moment. And even if he is second choice at Manchester City, maybe he doesn't want to disrupt that in case he loses his place in, in the team for the World Cup. So... For players that are in the team, they maybe don't want to disrupt too much when the window is going to shut three, four months away from the start of the World Cup, which is very unusual. Of course, we've never had a Winter World Cup before. This will be the first time it's ever happened with the World Cup starting in November. But on the other side of things, there may be some players who this season finished the, the the year out of their team and they're trying to fight for their place in the US roster. I look at an English example last year, um, last season, Jesse Lingard, who moved to West Ham in January. Of course, the Euros were at the end of the season. Jesse Lingard wasn't getting much game time at Manchester United. He'd fallen out of the England equation, and ultimately he didn't make the U- the England squad for the Euros, but he was one of the, f- the last players to be cut from that squad. His form for West Ham really put him into the discussion. So maybe there's a few players for, for the US who are currently... Out of favor who want to boost the World Cup chances and they have they have kind of less to lose than players who are already in the in the starting lineup. so there's two ways you can kind of look at it, but I think the World Cup is absolutely going to be a factor in some of the moves that are made this summer and Joe, I know that you were saying
1: like Stefan could move, he doesn't necessarily have to move, a lot of it depends on what Burhalter wants, but maybe in my mind, Stefan is one that is sort of impervious to this conversation because he's already not the starter at Man City, so if he moved to another club where he also wasn't the starter. It's not necessarily like his, his fortunes have changed too much, though if he went to a championship team or something like that, I guess we would expect him to be starting, and if he weren't, maybe it is a slightly bigger deal.
2: Yeah, I mean, it it really, it's hard to speculate because there's so many things we don't know, right? We don't, we just don't know if Beralta is as concerned as I am, and as as some folks out there are about Stefan and Goal. Like, we don't know if Beralta really thinks that's a problem for this team or not, so if he does think that then I think it makes sense for Stefan to move and try to prove himself and be a number one somewhere where he can play. And if Beralta doesn't care about that, then I don't know that if I'm Stefan, I'm necessarily trying to disrupt that impression. So I would just probably hang tight and wait until after the World Cup, and then I I might want to get some more first-team reps and go out and and try to really do this thing. But it's just hard to say. We don't really have any indication from Beralta that he does care, but maybe something's changed after the most recent batch of World Cup qualifiers.
1: This is awesome. Potentially a very silly point to raise, but I'm going to do it anyway. Is there anything to be said for the idea that Matt Turner now playing for Arsenal or playing for Arsenal this summer? I guess it would be weird if Zach Steffen went to a championship team or a lower-level Bundesliga team, and then we had the U.S. starting goalkeeper potentially playing for one club while the reserve goalkeeper is playing for Arsenal. That feels like it would be a strange confluence of events.
2: It would be weird, but I just never thought Matt Turner would be at Arsenal and Stefan would be at Manchester City anyway. Like, I true, remember true. the day the Stefan news broke of him going to City and thinking how bizarre that was. And I still think it is kind of bizarre. So I mean, Taylor, who is to question the pass of the, the goalkeepers in this U.S. pool? It's, it's, it's wondrous, Fair. really.
1: It is indeed. <laughs> uh, a couple for me. Uh, I think we'll probably see John Brooks on the move, given that he's out of contract. Yeah. It doesn't seem like life is great at Wolfsburg. I do not think we will see uh Weston McKinney. That was one that was that was speculated, but I think his injury severely limits his value. So for for that, if no other reason, I'm guessing he stays put at Juve. Uh one I would like to see maybe move on is Matt Miazga. His contract expires with Chelsea in June of twenty twenty-three. He's been on loan in La Liga this season, but only eleven appearances. He's 26 years old. I feel like a permanent move could be a good sort of basis for him to re-establish himself, get that foundation, and then continue to improve his game from there. Uh, Graham, any names that you think could be on the move or should be on the move?
3: Yeah, so maybe an obvious one um, to start with. I think it's entirely possible that Sergino Dest is on the move this summer, especially considering how much talk there was around him in the... January transfer uh, window earlier this year. It's a bit of an open secret that Barcelona want to sign Mazraoui as a free agent from Ajax this summer. The reason Xavi wants Mazraoui is the way he can drive into central midfield with the ball and act as another midfielder, Jao Cancelo style. This is something that he does for Ten Hag's Ajax and Barcelona have used Dani Alves in that way at right-back so far this season. The problem with Dani Alves is that he's 38 and so not exactly a long-term option this is a bit of a shame for Dest because I generally think he's done well for Barcelona this season. He has regained the trust of, of Xavi. It seemed like he was maybe out of favour and was going to be a bit of a. He was going to be Barcelona's John Brooks for a while and then he forced his way back into the, the team and he has played well before he suffered the injury. It just feels like Xavi wants something a, a little bit different from his right back in this system and Dest isn't so comfortable doing that Cancelo thing of carrying the ball into the middle. One thing I would say about Dest is I wouldn't be too worried about him leaving Barcelona. I think he has enough admiration out there that he lands at another high-profile club. Uh, One club that was previously interested in Dest was Chelsea. However, they wanted him as a backup left-back for Ben Chilwell when he was out injured uh, midway through the season. And now Chelsea can't even sign any players, so I'm not sure that that is the best destination right now. Um, Bayern Munich have a long-standing interest in Death dating back to his Ajax days when he had a, a choice between Bayern and Barcelona, and they still need a right-back, and he's been mentioned in relation to Bayern Munich recently, so maybe that could work. Um, and this suggestion is purely my own, I haven't seen any reports linking Dez with this club, but Taylor Rotwell, what about Manchester United? I think it's reasonable to assume that Ten Hag might want a new right-back if he's appointed, which very much seems to be the way the reporting is going recently. Um, that position is very very important to his system and Dest is someone that he has worked with before and Barcelona might be willing to either loan him out or sell him on the cheap so just just a suggestion of some uh, destinations as you can tell from the profile of the clubs that I have mentioned I think even if Dest uh, leaves Barcelona this summer he, he probably gets um, another chance at a, a big elite level club. Graham if as you said mazraoui leaves on a free
1: and if Ten Hag goes to Man United could you see a scenario in which Masraoui goes to Man
3: United with Ten Hag, and then just dest- stays at Barcelona? Um, yeah, it's possible. I guess uh, Masraoui knows Ten Hag and Manchester United are always going to be attractive, even if they are uh, post Sir first Ferguson Manchester United. Um, but Beautiful. it feels like there, there's too much uh, with Masraoui in Barcelona. There's too much smoke for there to be no fire. I would, I would put a. a a decent amount of money on him being a Barcelona player for the start of next season and then that shakes things up for Des unless he's going to be the backup to Jordi Alba at left back but I think for the US and for Des career that's not ideal so at that point he is probably in favour of a move not just uh, Barcelona Uh, I I like that shout. I had Dest
1: staying, but I think you've made a compelling argument for why he could end up moving on. Another one that I didn't think I would have on this list, but now I do, is Tyler Adams. Yeah. He is one who it makes me very nervous for him to uproot uh, just before a World Cup. But it does seem like he has, if not reached a ceiling, at least reached a limit to his Leipzig career. And maybe it's time to move on to try something new. He's under contract till June of 2025. So it wouldn't be the cheapest move, but maybe
3: one that could benefit him and wherever he ends up, Graham the the thing the the unfortunate thing for U.S. fans that they might have to confront with Tyler Adams is for Tedesco he hasn't been a first team pick since the middle of middle of January. Uh, Tedesco has recently favoured Conrad Limer in Adams' position. Limer scores twice against Dortmund at the weekend and is playing very well at the moment. Um, so if Limer's going to hold that position for the f- foreseeable future, then maybe Adams has a a decision to make. Maybe he falls into that category I was saying of players who actually uh actually have more to gain by by leaving their club this close to a world cup there is one possible outcome that potentially spares adams and that's if leimer leaves uh leipzig because i saw yesterday that he has recently he's been linked to manchester united and ralph ranic apparently has recommended him so if leimer leaves for for manchester united then adams possibly gets his has uh has has placed back. But Adams is, is such an important figure for the US and he does a job that pretty much nobody else in the current pool can do, that I think it's really important that he's playing in the build-up to to a World Cup. The other thing about Adams' game is he needs those reps to stay sharp, in my in my opinion. His game is all about, you know, coverage, lateral, lateral coverage, intensity, and that, that requires a certain level of fitness that I think you only get from doing that over and over again in a match in a match setting. So maybe for him more than a lot of players' first team football is is really really important. I don't think this is likely, but I was I was fantasizing about what clubs would would uh, would work for Tyler Adams if he was to leave Leipzig this summer, and I was dreaming about uh, Borussia Dortmund because can you imagine a midfield of him Jude Bellingham and Giorena slightly further forward? That that would be a spicy <laughs> midfield, and I'd like to see that. Graham, I love that midfield, and I do think that would be
2: be really really fun. I hear your point about Adam's needing to stay sharp and I I wish I could speak more to that and I wish I had more experience in in that realm of fitness. I don't I don't know that could be a perfectly accurate argument and I could be foolish for for kind of disagreeing. But I I think for Tyler Adams because of how injury prone he's been forever, it almost could be a good thing for him and the US. If the goal that we're looking through this whole thing, if the lens we're looking through this whole idea is World Cup and I think it's impossible to totally remove that from the situation. I think if Tyler Adams is at Leipzig, he has the best chance of being healthy and ready for the US at the World Cup. I, I don't know if Tedesco will choose to play him more next season. I think he's he certainly has Tyler Adams not been as involved under Tedesco as he's been in the past for RB Leipzig but I think that could be a good thing for the U.S. I think it could be a good thing for Tyler Adams ahead of the World Cup maybe you stay at Leipzig you don't play you play 30 minutes here and there you get some spot starts you know once a month or or so Leipzig will be balancing multiple competitions next year so there'll be plenty of minutes to go around maybe you stay and you wait until next summer to make the move or you wait until the January window if there's an uptick in transfers after the World Cup I just think if you're Tyler Adams, you might be better off playing less. And I'm sure he doesn't think that, right? Because no real professional athlete is going to think that. And this goes back to my Zach Steffen thing. I'm sure he doesn't think that, Steffen, that he's got this cushiest job. But I think staying at Leipzig would be the best thing for Adams from a health standpoint because he hasn't proven that he can stay on the field, play 90 every week, and stay healthy for a season. It just doesn't happen. So I'd love to see Adams move if or, if just because... We've never seen him at a non-Red Bull club, and I think it would be fun to see him develop different skills and and get different looks in a different system. Even though Tedesco has tweaked the system some, I just don't know that now is the time that I would choose to make that move if I was controlling all of the pieces of the U.S. puzzle.
1: I like that Joe is – I'm going to coin it the uh, bubble wrap approach is what Joe wants. Wrap him up, (laughs) get him through to the World Cup, and then we'll see what happens. Joe, what if Jesse Marsh said – Tyler Adams is the player I need to make my Leeds team function <laughs> the way I want them to. Are you okay with that move?
2: No, I think you got to go. I know Leeds is a big club, but I think if you're Tyler Adams, you want to aim higher than that. A Dortmund really? would be would be great. I think you could you could, I think you, Taylor, do you do you honestly not think Adams could do better than Leeds? Maybe this is my American ignorance, show, I mean, I, I, who are you talking to? Just, you know I
1: think Tyler Adams <laughs> yeah. Tyler Adams could play for any team in the world if he wants to. That that is my starting position. Until recently, Joe,
3: I would have said yes to that, but I I do sense just a little bit of a dynamic shift at Leipzig, and and if he's not first team at Leipzig, then all of a sudden that step up maybe isn't so clear for him. And if he is to leave Le- Leipzig, it's maybe a lateral move from, from Leipzig. But until recently, yes, I would have said he would have he would be aiming higher than Leeds.
2: Well, and, and Leeds just isn't a lateral move to Leipzig is kind of my point. Like I'm not no, saying he sure. should go to a bigger club than Leipzig, but I do think that he can aim a little higher than a, a relegation battling Premier League team.
1: What about Matthew Hoppy, uh, Joe? That was the final name I had on my list. 21 years old, moved to Mallorca this past season, this past summer. Only four appearances, only one start, zero goals, 128 total minutes. He's been an unused substitute 16 times. That is not the number I think he was hoping for when he made that move. Would you like to see him stick it out at Mallorca, knowing that we don't know a ton about Mallorca and how they operate? Uh, or would you lo- like to see him maybe get a loan or a permanent move elsewhere to sort of kickstart his career again?
2: Ah, I don't know, Taylor. I don't know enough yep. about what's been going on behind the scenes there or why he has not been playing. I know he's dealt with some injuries this season. So that's certainly part of it. But he's he's young still, right? He's 21. I don't think that a season in the Segunda Division would be the worst thing for Matthew Hoppe, I guess is my point. Malaga is, is in the relegation zone right now in La Liga. They're 18th and, and a couple points outside of, of that spot. So they're, they're two points behind Cadiz, who are in 17th. I, I'm not sure that spending a season and hopefully getting small reps, if that's what's in the cards for him, would be the worst thing in the second division in Spain. I also wouldn't be opposed to a move. I just think maybe some stability would be helpful there.
3: Who knows? Taylor Matthew is a wild card. Yeah. He he could do whatever he wants. I th- I think once I think once uh, Taki Kubo goes back to Real Madrid from Mallorca, then maybe Hoppy is is uh, getting some more minutes in in that position that Kubo's been playing as as kind of wide forward for, for Mallorca this season, but. By the time that happens, maybe Mallorca are in the <laughs> Segunda Division, as Joe says. Uh, one more question for you, Joe. Uh,
1: like, I think I've made clear my love for Tyler Adams and Weston McKinney. Joe, when it comes to your players that you have a particular affinity for with the US men's national team, is, is it Yunus Musa? Is that the number one? Is it Gio Reyna? Who, who are the ones that you sort of have that like, maybe the blinders on, maybe a little bit, bit of bias towards because you enjoy what they do so much?
2: Yeah, musa has got to be pretty high up on that list, but I will say, Taylor, over, over the course of World Cup qualifying, I think we've gotten a better look at maybe some of the areas that he struggles in, but in terms yeah. of the aesthetic profile of Yunus Musa and how he plays, his his smile as well, you see some of those pictures from training and he just looks like the, the nicest guy ever. Musa's really high up on that list. I, I love watching him play.
1: I ask because I think that is an important part to being a fan of the team, but also covering the team, is we always end up developing just like uh, particular affinities for certain players. I've got Adams and McKinney, as I said. Joe has uh, Yunus Musa. And Graham, it feels like you are getting that way with Cameron Carter-Vickers.
3: Uh, and Walker Zimmerman, the, okay. the <laughs> sexiest man alive, in my opinion.
1: <laughs> Graham least loves with the ponytail. some backs, apparently. All right, good to know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, close second Cameron Carter-Vickers, and he's not even playing for the U.S. Seventy <laughs> at, at the moment. There is there is a lot of talk about CCV at, at the moment, as my uh, Twitter timeline has reminded me a few times <laughs> since he scored the winning goal in the Old Firm derby for Celtic on Sunday, the goal that likely has given uh, Celtic the title in in Scotland. So a very important goal. He has been he's been very impressive. For Celtic. And there's a lot of talk already about his future for next season. So Celtic apparently have the option to sign CCV for a fee that eventually will uh, rise to about 10 million pounds, which would make him the most expensive signing in, in Celtic's history. Their current record is £9 million for Odds and Edward. Uh, Burnley, Leicester City, and Wolves have also been linked with CCV CCV, but I honestly Uh, honestly not being biased, I think he should stay at Celtic, at least for another season. I think Ange Postacoglu, the Celtic manager, he's been brilliant for Carter Vickers so far. He started off when he arrived from uh, Spurs on loan at Celtic. He started off a little bit shaky. He wasn't so sure of himself on the ball, which obviously has been a criticism of him all the way through his career. There were some lapses in concentration. He would panic at times. There was a game in particular, I think it was against Motherwell, where there's a moment where (laughs) twice in a row, he kind of slices a clearance high up into the air um and that kind of characterized a few of his early performances for Celtic now he's straightened out a lot of those a lot of those things he's certainly straightened out his his passing now he's not you know he's not uh, David Alaba or anything like that but Celtic play a style of football that is much more technical and more possession based than the US do at the moment under Post um and if, if Carter Vickers wasn't able, able on the ball, then Postacoglu wouldn't, wouldn't be playing him. Uh, Postacoglu has been really ruthless in pushing aside every player that isn't able to play a, play a pass. And uh, Carter Vickers has been an ever-present since he signed for, for Celtic. And what's more, it looks like Celtic are going to be in the Champions League next season. Um, the, automat- the the winners of the Scottish Premiership this season automatically go into the group stage of the Champions League and, and Celtic look like they're going to be the champions. So he's there's that higher level that Carter Vickers can also test himself at for Celtic. That's actually something that could really twist Berhalter's arm ahead of the World Cup. Um, the Champions League, as far as I'm aware, starts in September next season. So imagine a scenario where Carter Vickers is impressing in games against the best teams in Europe in the Champions League right before the World Cup while playing for the Champions of Scotland there's a chance that he wins Player of the Year in Scotland this year I think Craig Gordon and there's a couple other Celtic candidates but he's in that discussion is is the US really going to leave him out of that squad? In that scenario, I know there's a few if if buts and maybe's there. You know, he needs to play well in the Champions League and not be destroyed, which is which is a possibility. But in that scenario, is is he really going to be left out of the out of the, the roster by Berhartha if he's playing at, at that sort of level? So that's part of the reason why I think he should stay at Celtic because he's improved already. Celtic have got a higher level to test them, themselves at next season, and I think Carter Vickers can continue to improve under Post I hope, Graham, that we see CCV in June. I, I really do, especially after watching him play against Rangers.
2: I watched all of his clips from that game, and he was exactly how you'd build him for you know, the last couple of months now, and he did that against the the next best team in Scotland. I want to see more of him, and I think he could be a decent option. I mean, Chris Richards is is not been a part of this U.S. team after an injury, and I know he's back for Hoffenheim. He played over the weekend, but I don't think his spot on a roster should be cemented. Mark McKenzie, I, I certainly don't think, should have a guaranteed spot. You're really looking at, at not a clear depth chart after Walker Zimmerman and Miles Robinson. Why not try to bring CCV and have him play a game in the June window? You'll have two friendlies and two Nations League games. Get him, get him involved at some point. You don't need to burn Zimmerman and Robinson for you know, all of those minutes, right? for, you know, for 360 minutes. Why wow, that math took me way too long in my head. Get some other players involved here and there in, in certain instances. And I think CCV has made a pretty strong case that he should be one of those extras involved in the June window.
1: Graham uh, so you're saying you'd be okay if he stayed at Celtic maybe that benefits him if he were to move to say the Premier League is there a team that you think he could if not walk into sort of move to and be in contention to start right away or could help make that team better or is there
3: like a a level in the Premier League that you think he could function within um that's, that's a difficult one to answer because I think that the circumstances need to be right from mm-hmm. I think um, Burnley are interested in him. I think he probably starts for Burnley, particularly if Tarkovsky leaves at the end of the season, which which seems likely. I think he might be out of contract at the end of the season. James Tar- really like Tarkovsky. Um, so he could end up at Burnley. But Burnley from CCV at Celtic, he really has improved on the ball. And and so if he's going to go to another team that isn't Celtic, I I don't I don't want him to regress in in that regard. I want him to go to another team that's going to play with the ball. I'm not I'm not sure Burnley is that is that team. So. Leicester City would maybe be a good destination for him. I, I don't know whether he... Starts so well. Johnny Evans is getting on a little bit, so maybe he's maybe he's the they the phase out Evans and he comes in for for Johnny Evans. Uh, Chu has not been in great form this season, so yeah, actually, maybe I've talked myself into Leicester City here. Maybe he gets the opportunity that he needs at, at Leicester City. I know his game is developed. I know he's improved in certain areas. If we have
1: a starting center back pairing of CCV and soyun I'm just calling them the Bash Brothers right now because they will wreck <laughs> some people. Uh, the reason why I don't hate the idea of him going to Burnley, I think everything you said is correct. That maybe he's not going to improve his passing game so much. But as I understand it, the reason why Burnley are able to be so effective is Sean Deitch coaches that defense to really limit clear cut shooting opportunities. It's about blocking uh, angles when you're shooting, it's about blocking like kind of lines of sight and making teams shoot from low percentage situations. And if CCV goes in and is able to kind of function within a very specific system and pick up on the instruction, if you're Greg Burhalter, who plays a very specific system and wants people to do very specific things, to me, that does sort of lend an idea to maybe CCV can come in and help this team perform better, or maybe he can have it make a difference. So we shall see. But either way, exciting times for Cameron Carter Vickers, exciting times for lots of young Americans who could be on the move this summer, and very exciting times for the players that we have just seen help the United States qualify for the World Cup. When we come back, we're going to be breaking down some players and if their stock is up or down at the conclusion of World Cup qualifying. Back soon.
0: Welcome back.
1: We're talking about USMNT players whose stock is up or down, or rather, we are about to do that. We're going to start with Joe. Joe, let's go to uh, Timothy Weah,
2: shall we? And if you say anything other than his stock is up, we're going to fight. Oh, yeah. Tim Weah's stock is way up, Taylor. He's, I think, one of the biggest winners from World Cup qualification in general. He was injured for that September window, but played in every other window of World Cup qualifying. And throughout those games... I believe was regularly one of the U.S.'s most dangerous attacking players. He forced an own goal against Costa Rica at home. Uh, He scored a goal against Jamaica away, a really nice goal on the left side of the box, and was dangerous in other games as well. He's not the finished product, and we've talked about that on the show before. I think there's certainly room for his decision-making to improve in and around the box and in the final third, but I think he's totally cemented himself as a top three winger on the U.S. depth chart. like It's Christian Pulisic because of the fact that he's Christian Pulisic, it's Gio Reyna because he's the most talented player in this pool for me. And it's Tim Weah who's proven to be able to create things when the U.S. didn't have Pulisic and Reyna. And so for those reasons, I think Weya is a, a total lock for the World Cup qualification roster. And I think he's a really influential attacking player for this team. Uh, Graham, any agreement,
3: disagreement there? Nope. He was he was on my, my list <laughs> as well. Um, and yeah, over the course of qualification, he very much became one of the U.S.'s uh, most important players. I was looking back at kind of his progression and seeing how he became uh, one of the first kind of names on the team sheet and looking at some of the players that got starts in wide forward positions in, in, in the octagonal before him. So some of these aren't so surprising. So Gio Reyna, Brendan Aronson, then we have Josh Sargent, Paul Ariola, Conrad De La Fuente started a game in a wide, uh, a wide position in, in, in the first game of, of, of the Ocho. Um, that draw at El Salvador, I think it yep. was. Um so, yeah, that was interesting and kind of just underlined how Timothy Wea has, kind of, has uh, his stock has shot up. Yeah. One other thing for me that I've mentioned previously, I believe it was after the
1: Mexico game in Cincinnati. Uh, Berhalter was asked about Tim Wea and sort of the differences in his game. And he talked about Wea sitting down with Berhalter, watching film, requesting clips to understand what his responsibilities were what berhalter wanted him to do what he hadn't been doing and that i think spoke volumes to greg berhalter about his dedication to understanding what the system required and what way needed to do to function within it but i think it also just showed him that there's a, a level of attention to detail and a willingness to work that i think was was pretty impressive so uh yeah i definitely have tim Wea as a gentleman whose stock is pretty significantly up graham
3: what about you who, sh- who should we talk about next so on my list, um, I have Anthony Robinson, who cast your mind all the way back to the to the start of the Ocho, Show, um, which actually wasn't that, that long ago. I don't right? know why it, feels it seems like years. so. Yeah, exactly. I was very surprised when I when I found out that it was like the second half of last year. Anyway, um, Andy Robinson was actually on the bench for two of the USMNT's first three qualifiers. Dest and George Bello both started games ahead of him at left back before he he uh, he gets a start. And it wasn't until the win over Honduras in September that Robinson really started to make that left back position his own. And he's never let go of that yeah. position since. Um, you'd say he's probably one of the first names on the on the team sheet now. And I think there are still some questions over his uh, over his crossing, something you've raised before. Taylor, but he's undoubtedly the best American left back right now. Is playing well for Fulham, who will, uh, barring an absolute collapse, be back in the Premier League next season, so there's another higher level for for Robinson to come, Um, and I also think his crossing has improved over over the last few months. I have to say, I I, I haven't seen much of Fulham this season, so um, maybe his crossing hasn't improved for them, but for the USMNT, I, I thought his deliveries in the game against Panama were were, uh, were, pretty, were a pretty effective way of creating opportunities. And he seemed to be doing a much better job in that game of actually picking out a, a, a teammate in the middle. So when you talk about Timothy Weah sitting down with Berhalter and, and looking at ways of, of improving, his, improving his game, I'm kind of speculating here, but maybe uh, Jedi Robinson has done similar with Berhalter and he's, he's getting results from that.
2: Yeah, and his, his speed mixed with uh, his quickness and agility, like his physical attributes combined with some... Decent technical traits, I think, have have really earned him that spot, Graham. He has become the guy at left back to the point where Taylor left back was a conversation surrounding this team that we had to have for so long, and it's just not. It's not that Jedi Robinson fixes everything, but he's very much that guy at this point.
1: Yeah, no arguments for me, and I would say... An argument I used to make uh, for Josie Altador in his time with uh, Sunderland, which is much maligned, is the idea that he wasn't getting a ton of service, he didn't have numbers around him, he didn't have support uh, to sort of, sort of when he was knocking down balls or to combine with, and so... Yes, he could have done better, but they're extenuating circumstances, and I feel like the complete inverse of that is true here, not in the sense that Jedi Robinson deserves blame, but more so that the conversation we keep having is is who's going to be the number nine, who's going to lead the line, who's going to be the one in the box to get on the end of a cross or to finish a a sort of low pass in, and if you don't have clear answers to that— I also think it's kind of hard to be super critical of the people supplying those crosses. So when it's failing to clear the first defender with regularity, which I do think happened a couple of different times with Robinson, I have more concerns. But once he does start getting it over that defender and putting it into dangerous positions, but no one is there or the run is off or the timing is off, then I'm not as inclined to put that entirely on him. So overall, I have a much... Like fonder impression of Anthony Robinson at present, and I'm very happy to see him in and around the team. He's another one who, if we didn't have him healthy, I would be very concerned because I think there's a pretty big drop from him to whomever comes in to deputize.
3: Yeah, and and I think Berhalter is is clearly very pleased with well both of his both of his fullbacks. I think he said in an, an interview yeah. a few <laughs> months ago that the fullbacks was the USMNT's superpower. Which, by the way, I know that the fullbacks are good, but worst superpower ever. Yeah. Uh, that is not making it into the Marvel uh, Cinematic Super Universe. Super speed thing something.
2: Soon. Come on. It's, it's like, like yeah, when exactly. Meg from
3: Family Guy, her superpower
1: is her ability to like grow fingernails longer. Like, I, I think that's <laughs> that's uh, of, of an equivalent level. So we're all inclined to say Anthony Robinson uh, stock up, so to Tim Weah. Bye, bye bye Joe, who are we talking about next?
2: Um, I've got a, a double here with Sebastian Jet and Luca De La Torre If you've been following the U.S. men's national team, you already know which direction these two are going to go. LeJet is down. De La Torre is up. Starting with LeJet, he's been a Baraltier guy (laughs) since day one. He got a lot of run in 2019. uh, And from then until now, he was in that first ever January camp in Arizona and in Chula Vista under great Baraltier back in 2019. And he was called up in the, the first September window for World Cup qualifying, played in all three of those first three games, El Salvador away, Canada home, Honduras away, called up in October and then started that middle game against Panama in that window and did not play well, just like almost the entirety of the U.S. team didn't play well, called up in November and in January, February, but didn't play in any one of those those games. And then he wasn't called up in March. You can see the decline from playing every game in the first window, playing once in the second window called up but not playing in the next couple windows, and then just not called up at all. He's lost his spot in the depth chart. He's not really a part of this U.S. team anymore, as far as I can tell. And I think understandably so. I think he's, his quality declined for the U.S. men's national team. He was a useful player at one point. But by the by the time the World Cup qualifiers were rolling around, he wasn't all that aggressive or effective on or off the ball. So legit, downward trajectory. De La Torre, upward trajectory. Hadn't been called up under Greg Barrauthor until March of 2021. Um, he was off the bench. He came off the bench against Jamaica and then Nor- Northern Ireland in that window and was called up for the first time in World Cup qualifying in October, came off the bench against Jamaica, then wasn't called up in November. And Taylor, you and I had a lengthy discussion about this, about his podcast appearance on the Sam's Army podcast. And he talked about how Baralter didn't call him up because there were other players who were better in transition. And and I, we had a, we had a lengthy discussion about that at the time. We can just leave it there. And then was eventually called back up to this U.S. team. So called in for January, February, started and was very effective against Honduras. And then was a key player again in the most recent window. Played against Panama, played against Costa Rica. It seems pretty, pretty clear to me that De La Torre has certainly passed Legit and has probably even passed Gianluca Busio, based off of the minutes they've played recently for the U.S., as one of those number eights. He's not McKenney. He's probably not even going to get minutes over Musa. But he's going to be a part of this U.S. team, it seems like, going forward. And for that reason, I think he, he definitely is deserving
3: of a stock-up. Uh, Graham, any thoughts on Sebastian Leggett or Luca De La Torre? De La Torre I find very interesting because watching for Heracles, um, as I've mentioned a number of times on this podcast, I do have concerns over him not using this, his skill set to the best of his ability. But for the, for the U.S., I have no complaints whatsoever. So I am, I'm very interested to see what his ceiling is. As as a player, because to be honest, I'm not totally sure how good he is. Um, he could yep. be very very good. Equally, he he might just be playing as well as he can in his his career. So I kind of have a lot of questions about Delatore, and I think Joe's right with Leggett. It just feels like um, through other options playing better, one of which being Delatore in that central midfield unit, um, Leggett's just kind of fallen falling down the chart. Is it fair to say, uh,
1: Joe, that like we have dilatory trending upwards, but maybe if we're trying to be responsible podcasters, responsible people who talk about the national team, that we could say we don't know for sure, like how comfortable he is against stronger opposition with the U.S., that we're OK with him as a sort of backup option being in that squad. But if the time comes when we have to, I was going to say Italy, that won't work. Uh, But let's say we're playing England in the World Cup, and suddenly we don't have Yunus Musa, we don't have Weston McKinney. Right now, I'm sort of like, I guess it's Luca Delatore, but I don't feel great about that. I think between now and then I would like to see him either stay at Heracles and elevate his game or get a move and continue to develop his game such that if that dilemma were to happen,
2: we have some more clarity about him. Totally agree. Yeah, we just haven't seen it yet with the national team, and we haven't seen a ton of really high-profile club games for him either. Getting better looks against better opposition is huge, and that's why I hope the U.S. are able to schedule some high-quality friendlies. They will have two friendlies in the June window, but we just don't know against two yet. It would be great to see some good teams in there, and great to see Luca Luca De La Torre get minutes so that I think Beralta and the rest of us can have a better sense of how he'll fare in some of those games.
1: Uh, Joe, you have stock down for Walker Zimmerman, right? Uh, I know you don't, but I just wanted to imply that just to see if it
2: made Graham upset. (laughs) I I don't, Graham, but were you upset for a split second there? Do not speak ill of the USMNT's (laughs) Thor. (laughs) He is. He really is the... The Texas to California to Nashville Thor in Major League Soccer. His stock's got to be up, and we all know it, right? Yeah, He's played for Beralta plenty in the past, but wasn't called up in September. Let's not forget. Didn't play a—oh, excuse me. Man, I'm butchering this. He was called up in September. Excuse me. Didn't play a single minute in that window, though. All the center back minutes went to Ream, Miles Robinson, John Brooks, and Mark McKenzie. And then he wasn't called up in October initially. It was John Brooks, McKenzie, Ream, M. Robin, Richards— but then uh, Tim Rehm had to withdraw from that squad, and Zimmerman was the late replacement. And he started two games in that window, played in all three games, and has started seven of the eight Cup qualifiers from November till now. So it was a weird blip at the beginning there. In, in September and October, at least the initial roster announcement in October, but since then, he's been a very good piece of a very good U.S. defense and a very good entire U.S. defensive structure. He deserves a ton of credit for his performance at Zimmerman in World Cup qualifying, and I think he's a, a pretty much a lock starter for this U.S. team at least yeah. headed into the June window.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think a key factor in Zimmerman becoming maybe I've maybe I've misread this. So you guys can can tell me if I have, but. I think a key factor in Zimmerman becoming an important figure for the U.S. has actually been a, a slight change in mindset from Berhalter. So initially, it seemed that Berhalter was determined to find the most technically able centre-backs to play out with. And maybe Zimmerman, who is more physically able than technically able, um, didn't fit that mould. However, looking back through the game, something shifted where Berhalter decided that Zimmerman and Robinson, Miles Robinson, offered enough in terms of their, their distribution because they offered more in a pure defensive sense and Zimmerman is a strong natural defender and over the course of qualifying um, Berhalter just seemed to realise how important that was to his team I do also think Zimmerman has improved on the ball there were games yep. like the one at home to El Salvador which he actually started alongside Chris Richards who is meant to be the better ball player of the two where Zimmerman was was also bringing the ball out from the back and progressing it up that right side so he's, he's not... You know, he's not a one dimensional um lump of a central defender, even though he kind of is that as well. He can play with the ball at his feet, but I, I think it's interesting um considering how Berhalter has kind of shifted what he wanted from those centre backs, and that has been to the to the benefit of Zimmerman, who has played recently very, very well for the US.
2: Yeah, Graham, I think that's a, a perfect point to make. You can see the profile change from a guy like John Brooks or Reem to M. Rob and, and Walker Zimmerman. It's a it's a pretty clear contrast, and Zimmerman has certainly been a beneficiary of that profile change
1: Joe I didn't have Miles Robinson on my list not for any reason other than just that his stock has sort of always been up yeah so to say like has it changed I think the answer is no it just is
2: up are you good with that one yeah it was up after the summer I think that's the yeah. key point he, he had almost certainly locked up a job after the summer and so headed into qualifying he was kind of penciled in as one of those starters and he still is now after those 14 games
1: uh, Joe, so uh, Miles Robinson has maybe locked in his spot. What about the number nine position, Joe, where it feels like no one has quite <laughs> oh, done dear. that?
2: Yeah, I have stock up for every nine in the U.S. pool who didn't feature in qualifying, um, which is sort of a, a, an attempted roast on all the nines who did. In in Ricardo Pepe, whose stock I think has stayed relatively even. He was an unknown quality for the US, quantity for the U.S. before qualifying and I think still sort of is now. Stock right. Down you mean through. from you mean from start to finish? Because I was going to say it went
3: up, 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 right. and then it's gone. It kind of leveled down, down. back <laughs> out. Right. It,
2: it leveled yeah. back out after that October window. I think no, September and October. But really, the window is open. Like, the door is open. The entire house is open right now for the U.S. in the nines in this pool. Berhalter said recently that, you know, he's hoping that one of our nines gets into good form by the time the World Cup comes around. That's a quote that uh, I think was said to Jeff Carlisle. He's just hoping that someone, anyone, will will get into form. And that leaves the door very much open for Brandon Vasquez. It leaves the door open for Daryl DK. should he get in good form. He didn't participate in World Cup qualifying. It leaves the door open for, for any of these nines, even the ones who did play in World Cup qualifying. But I think really outside of Jesus Ferreira, who I think stock has gone up, I think you're looking at so many question marks at this nine spot. Ferreira is the only one who I think is a, a virtual lock for Qatar, should he be healthy. Outside of that, there's at least one, if not two, nine spots that I think are just completely up for grabs
3: right now. One one number nine whose stock has surely gone down over the course of qualifying, to the point where I'm not even sure he's number nine now, <laughs> is, uh, is Josh Sargent, who... Obviously starts two of the S70's first three games of, of the octagonal and uh, then recently hasn't been seen at all, which has coincided with a very poor spell at, at Norwich. And I think there is another world where Sargent has, has played a, a full season as a number nine and um, he's gone to a club that harnesses him in that position. And the thing about Sargent is, on paper, he could work well in the, the the USA system. You know, he's mobile, he's capable of pressing from the front, his work rate can't really be questioned. Yes, he's not really score, scored many goals recently, so that's a bit oh, of a problem. Important? is that important? Yeah, for I, I, I have heard that is important for uh, strikers, yeah, <laughs> that, that they score goals. But... I would be wary of writing off. Maybe for this yeah. World Cup, you know, he's not going to force himself back into the the roster. Well, maybe the roster, but not maybe not the, the lineup for the World Cup. But I would be wary of writing Sergeant off as an important figure for the U.S. and at some point in the future, because obviously he's still young, and it does still feel like if he finds the right club, then his his attributes could make for a decent centre forward at some point. And that's why I think, Joe, your sort of every number nine who didn't play in,
1: in qualifying is a great shout because Josh Sargent, I 100% would have said the door is closed when we had Ricardo Pepe getting all the hype and getting his move. When we had Jesus Ferreira doing well, when Jossi Zardes was even still kind of in the con- consideration for getting starts here and there. It seemed like, OK, we moved on from Josh Sargent. He's dropped pretty far down the pecking order with the way things have gone. It does feel to me like the door is wide open for whomever comes through.
2: Yeah, the door is—I mean, that's that's what I'm trying to communicate here. It is certainly open. Ferreira is different in his profile, and he's been good, but he's played most of his minutes at home, where the U.S. in general has been good. So I don't think we've seen him tested in a lot of really weird or, or difficult environments. But, yeah, I mean, it's anybody's game right now, and that's like the goalkeeper uh, conundrum with both Stefan and Turner going to be on the bench, or it seems like they're both going to be on the bench at Premier League teams. Who ends up doing something to deserve call-ups and minutes at the 9— the U.S. is another major plot point ahead of, of the World Cup.
1: Graham, like I'm asking you this because Joe and I have talked about this team so many times in so many different ways that I think I tend to start to get hyped. And maybe I do follow that pattern a little bit of like Daryl TK scoring goals. He should start. Oh, never mind. Ricardo Pepe is scoring goals. He should start. I think sometimes I do get pulled into that hype machine a little bit. For someone like you, Graham, who doesn't have as much of a vested interest in the U.S. national team, at least not right now. If Scotland don't make it, maybe we can we can bring you back in as your uh, honorary national team. Like, do you have ideas on how we should be evaluating potential number nines? And I know that's a massive question and one that only burhalter can truly answer. But I guess what I mean is more like if Sargent scores four goals in five games, my assumption would be that everybody is going to be clamoring for him to play for the United States again. And if he were to play and score two goals against Granada, I think that hype is only going to build. But at the same time, as we've already said, some of those opponents aren't necessarily the best indicator of World Cup strength opponents. And I, I guess I just don't want to keep going into this cycle. So I'm wondering if you have ideas on sort of concrete signs that a player is sort of solidly in contention or should be in contention for
3: that starting spot so if i have the usmnt fan base on the therapist's chair um and i'm talking to the fan base about the the number nine conundrum my advice would be Focus on what the U.S. has, and the U.S. Has, has a lot in terms of other positions, and find a player, if there's not a standout candidate who's who's rattling in 20 goals in the Premier League, because obviously that changes thing and you, and things and you just stick him up front. If there isn't that candidate, then you find someone that makes the best of the other players that you've got. You find the number nine that gets the best out of Christian Pulisic. You get you find the number nine that can link up well with Gio Reyna and brings Wes McKennie into the game. And that's why for me, Right now, at this moment, and again, a lot can change between now and November, but right now, I would play Jesus Ferreira in most games for, for the US. I understand what you're saying, Joe, about he's played most of his minutes at home. We don't know how he, he's still a young player. We don't know how he's going to react at a World Cup, a high-pressure environment like that. But he, for me, is the player that just gets the most out of that team in in general. Ricardo Pepe could get hot for Augsburg and score 10 goals in, in the Bundesliga by the time the World Cup rolls round. That seems unlikely at this point. So... I just think the US maybe need to chill a little bit about the number nine because you've got so much talent in another area. It's not even as if all your talent is in defence and you're thinking, oh my goodness, where's the goal's going to come from in attack? Like, the attack in other every other area is good. Like, Brendan Aronson can play centrally if you need that sort of player. Gio Reyna can play centrally. You know, Tristan Pulisic is in form right now. McKennie, Musa, all these players are... Really are very, very talented and, and bring a goal threat. So that's that's kind of my two cents and how I would look at it right now. But yes, it would be great if uh, Robert Lewandowski was American. Uh, Graham, if you did have the entire USMT fan
1: base on the couch, I would expect you to Goodwill Hunting style first grow a beard, uh, a la Robin Williams, and then go with That's going to be difficult. It's, it's not your fault. It's Bruce Arena's fault. He can't hurt you anymore. I just need you to repeat that over and over and over again until people internalize that Kuva is done. We've qualified for the World Cup. Now let's just be happy. And let's be happy about Jesus Ferreira. That's a player that I I would say definitely stock up. And he is one who maybe of all of the number nines, Joe, if we're saying any of them maybe had their stock increase a little bit in World Cup qualifying he would he would be one who I think did. And maybe it's not the out and out starter for the US. Maybe it's a situational starter, or he's an impact substitution, or he just comes in to do different things against a team that is sort of stymieing what the US wants to do. But either way, Jesus Ferreira is an attacker that I have no issues with being uh in the roster going forward and potentially making that World Cup.
2: Agreed. I think he will, barring injury. I think he'll he'll be at the World Cup and I think he'll start a game for the US there, if not multiple games. Another attacker, though, Taylor, that I think had his stock move for the U.S. is Christian Pulisic. And I think his stock has gone down for this U.S. team. Uh, And maybe folks out there disagree. But he missed October due to injury. Played every other window. Had some phenomenal moments along the way. Like, let's not forget these really good moments. Scored a goal off the bench in that 2-0 win in Cincinnati. Uh, Snagged a goal off the bench against Honduras in February. Scored a hat trick against Panama. Two of those were penalties. But he has not been consistently dangerous in the attack. He has not been... Christian Pulisic, at least at the height of his powers. He made a ton of poor decisions against uh, Honduras away in September. Came off the bench in both games in November while he's still recovering from injury. So sure, he scores a goal, but he wasn't overly impactful in terms of the run of play in those games. Was stagnant against El Salvador in January. Struggled to beat Alistair Johnson against Canada in, in January. Johnston against Canada in January. he got to get the Johnson versus Johnston. He hasn't been dominant. The U.S. needs a dominant Christian Pulisic in the World Cup And after qualifying, I'm not sure that people should be all that confident that they're going to get it. There's so much time, to be clear, between now and November. At least there's time for Pulisic to get reps with Chelsea, to get some looks at the national team over the summer. Again, in the fall, to have club games in the fall as well. But I don't think Christian Pulisic's stock has gone up. And I don't have a higher view of Christian Pulisic and his ability to impact a game after qualifying. So I I think his stock has gone down.
1: I mean, I want to say you're being harsh, but I don't think you are because I think you've reasoned it pretty well there. I look at that Panama game where he gets the hat trick. Obviously, two of those are penalties, but that felt like this is the Pulisic we've wanted to see. It's him sort of taking the game to the opponent, making goals happen, not backing down in those moments when... Maybe there's a lot on the line to take those penalties. He finishes them expertly and very calmly at that. He does the worm. What more do you need? But that's the performance I think we needed from him at times in other games in qualifying, and we didn't get. We didn't see him rise to the occasion either due to injury or getting kicked or not being at the fitness level required or just having an off game. But I think you're absolutely right, Joe, that like his stock is for me. Basically, instead of having an up arrow or a down arrow, I just have like a squiggly line that ends trending sort of down because we've seen positive, we've seen negative. And I think that's why I end up on the negative side is because he is a player that we need... To lead that team and be that important player and lead that attack and be somebody that when the game isn't going well, he makes something happen. He has that electrifying moment that sort of jump starts the US. And he can do that. But we've also seen in World Cup qualifying that he also sometimes can't do that. And so I think you're right to have that level of concern, or if not criticism, then just doubt about where he fits in or, or how much he leads this team going forward. So Joe, uh a, a great shout uh, J- uh graham agree disagree with that one
3: no i i agree i think recency bias you would you would maybe say he hasn't uh you know he's not trending down but if you look at the whole qualification campaign as as a whole yeah, then yeah and and you, i'm tempted to say that he was he was more impactful in kind of the last world cup campaign when he was what 18 years old or, or something like that you know he scores in in that in that fateful game in trinidad and tobago and Kind of felt like he was dragging that team a little bit at times, and he hasn't really done that all that much for the yeah. U.S. recently, besides that that Panama game, where that that match, as you say, Taylor, is kind of a reminder of how Pulisic can can can, can drag the, the U.S. ceiling up that little bit. Pulisic is a, he's he's a difference maker, and if the U.S. gets the Panama uh, Christian Pulisic, then maybe quarterfinals is a realistic target for the U.S. I think that he makes that big of a difference where if he's on form, then U.S. are are sweeping aside teams at the World Cup. And if if he's not, then they might be struggling. Um, So, yeah, I I agree, Joe. Uh, Joe, where are you on Gio Reyna, stock up, stock down at
2: this point? Uh inconclusive I don't think we can say I think he was brilliant off the bench in every single game in this pass window but he missed every other window but the first one and the last one he just hasn't been able to stay healthy when he's healthy and on the field I I do really think that he's the best player the US has but I don't think that we have enough evidence or we've seen him enough with this team since September to really give him a, a direction one way or the other
1: yeah I think an incomplete report card seems fair it also seems like we've been fairly positive uh through World Cup qualifying. I it, r- thus far we only have Legette and Josh Sargent and maybe Christian Pulisic as uh trending downwards or stock down. Graham, uh do you want to add another one to that list?
3: Just just a fairly obvious one I had John Brooks on the on the on the sell 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 list. <laughs> Obviously <laughs> there is a a lot of stuff there that maybe we're we're not privy to. I think at this point it's reasonable to assume that there has um well, maybe there hasn't been a falling out between Brooks and Berhalter, but it feels like Berhalter just there's something about Brooks's character or his presence in the dressing room or just how he adds or detracts from the chemistry of that team. There's something that he doesn't like about John Brooks. And even though he's still arguably the the best American defender right now at bringing the ball out from the back, which is obviously something Berhalter wants from his team. Um, he's he suffered from poor form earlier in the season for Wolfsburg He's leaving Wolfsburg at the end of the, the season, so there's an element of the unknown for him there at the moment. Obviously, he could look at that as an opportunity for a, for a fresh start, which I guess could have an impact on his USMNT future. But the way Berhalter's talked about him recently about pointing out, uh, what was it he said, deficiencies or discrepancies in in his game. It doesn't really feel like he's going to be back in the camp before the World Cup, and maybe not ever when uh, Berhalter's in charge.
1: Yeah, deficiencies in his game that need to be addressed, but we don't have time to address right now, but we might have time to address later on, but we might not, but those deficiencies remain. Yeah, it was a very sort of loopy answer that I'm not quite sure told us that much, aside from John Brooks, not very much in consideration Uh, As we go forward, at least in present circumstances, any other names either of you all wanted to mention here when talking about stock up, stock down?
2: Pick me the last one for me. And I didn't put this one on my list because I thought for sure one of you guys was going to say it. Weston McKinney. This is obvious. Sent home from September camp after the incident in Nashville, but played some awesome games for the U.S. after that in October and November. Had some good moments in January, February as well. He was already a lock starter, and the only reason why he didn't start games in the last window is because he's out with a broken foot. He was already a lock starter, but he's now a star, a genuine star for this team that conducts so much of their play. I don't think that was the case before World Cup qualifying. He's been a huge winner from this campaign, and and again, yeah, I I thought somebody would have mentioned him earlier, but yeah, credit to Weston McKinney for the work he put in.
1: Um, Graham, do you feel like that
2: was a, a veiled
3: shot? There is that Joe. Joe <laughs> I Jones mean, I should have done is? it.
2: I guess. I guess we all. We all. We all should have done it.
3: Yeah, maybe well. I'm not getting a Christmas card from uh, Weston uh, this this year. <laughs> no, but you're absolutely. You're absolutely right, Joe. We we probably should have mentioned him earlier. He is. He is. Uh, his stock isn't just up for the USMNT; it's up for Juventus yeah. as well. And so, if his stock is up for Juventus, then there's a good chance it's also going to be up for the national team.
1: I think he has become a player in my mind. Similar to Jermaine Jones a little bit, that just that, like, for whatever issues I had with Jermaine Jones, if the U.S. is losing 2-0 on the road to Costa Rica, you know he's not okay with it, and you know maybe it's going to end in a red card for him, maybe it's going to end up in a ridiculous, like, worldy of a goal, but you're going to get... Some level of response from him, and I think that was lacking a little bit on the evening in Costa Rica. Maybe because they'd already qualified, or likely already qualified. But still, I think Weston McKinney comes in. There is that energy, that it, there is that dynamism to him, uh, and I think he does bring just that sort of leadership. We're not backing down approach that maybe has been missing. So yeah, Joe, uh, great shot for Weston McKinney. One other veteran, just as veteran,
3: long as he doesn't, just as long as he doesn't bring his ranch pizza anywhere near. Yeah, me. get that <laughs> out of here.
2: I agree, Graham. <laughs>
1: I think Italy agrees with you. Uh, the only <laughs> other player that I wanted to mention briefly is DeAndre Yedlin. And that's one who I, I thought we were we were done with Yedlin on, on the national team level. It seemed like it was going to be Dest and Cannon. Uh, remember when it was Nick Lima for a while? That was a time. Um, and, and there's just been so many other options at right back. But DeAndre Yedlin has been an important player for this U.S. team. Starts both games against Mexico. But I think also a thing I hadn't fully realized is that he's... A veteran presence. I realized that, but I didn't realize how much that was lacking in this team. It's such a young team. I think it is one of the youngest teams to qualify for the World Cup. And so to have a person who has been through qualifying before, uh, has, I believe, played in a World Cup or been to a World Cup. Uh, It's been a long time. I can't quite remember. But I know that DeAndre Edlin is a leadership figure for this team. I think he's a locker room guy. I think he's a good chemistry guy. He's got a good bond with Timothy Weah. Uh, You could see that in the qualification celebrations. I saw it in person in Orlando. I I think he is a a locker room glue sort of dude who I think will continue to be in this team I think Reggie Cannon is still in the conversation I think still could go it's one of those position groups where I wouldn't be fully surprised if we saw three right backs at the World Cup because Yedlin can do certain things really well but can also be a locker room leader so I had Yedlin's stock up in a way that I was not expecting when we started qualifying
2: agreed yeah I think he really has locked in that second right back spot and Taylor to your point Dest could be the backup left back as well we just we don't really know so it's entirely possible that Yedlin not only is on that roster, but that he also plays minutes at the World Cup, which is not necessarily something that I thought would happen. I don't think it was ever fully out of the the realm of possibilities, but I think he certainly has moved up in, uh, in our estimation, and it seems like in Beralta's as well.
1: All right, gentlemen. Well, I appreciate you all running through uh stock up, stock down, workup qualifying summary. I appreciate you all talking about players who could get a move, talking about the Nations League and Graham. I appreciate your your moment of silence for Kieran Tierney. <laughs> are are you wearing a black armband? How are you going to go about mourning him properly over the next
3: few months? So I'm just gonna carry around a uh plastic supermarket bag which if anyone has seen that's how Kieran Tierney carries his uh, gear into the Emirates all the other players have their Louis Vuitton wash bags and Kieran Tierney always has a plastic Tesco bag so I'm just going to walk around with, with one of those for the next few weeks
2: I'm also, I'm also planning on editing a 30 minute moment of silence at the beginning of the show when we <laughs> talked about this so that'll also serve to really just commemorate uh, Kieran Tierney's healthy me. Yeah, you're welcome.
1: Graham, is that just or Joe, is that just code word for you're just going to mute me for the entirety of like, <laughs> the beginning of the show? Because that's fair. That's probably a smart way to do it.
2: No, no, I'll, I'll just do the thirty minutes of silence. But don't give me any ideas, Taylor. Come on now. All right, ooh, I will not. I will,
1: in fact, I will just stop talking at this point. But I will say, <laughs> listeners, we've got more shows obviously coming up this week. There's an allocation disorder to round out the week, but we've also got listener questions. We're going to be doing a Champions League review because the knockout rounds resume the this week. <laughs> Graham Ruffin's (laughs) going to sing a little bit with his empty Tesco bag. Graham Ruffin, thank you for singing. Thank you for talking about Kieran Tierney. Thank you for many other things uh, from today's episode.
3: Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. I enjoyed that one today. I've
1: always wanted to be on Mad Money. (laughs) (laughs) Joe Lowry, I hope you have as well, my friend. Thank you as well.
2: Thank you, Taylor and Graham. You're a genius. That was was really funny. Good work. (laughs)
1: Listeners, thanks so much for listening as I laugh myself out. We'll talk to you again very soon.